Almighty Father in heaven, you are true and good and perfect in all your being and in all that you do. Bless us, I pray, Father. Bless us by turning us away from the counsel of the wicked and keep us from standing with the sinner. Guard us from sitting with the scoffer. May our great delight, may our singular delight, may our lasting joy be in your abiding treasure, which is the word of God. Give us eyes to see that we may savor your word this morning and meditate on it, that we might desire to meditate on it, not just occasionally, but day and night. Thank you, Father, for the streams of water that you have planted us by. As we open your word this morning, we want to drink deeply of this, your provision. Like a tree planted by streams of water, may our, may our roots be firmly set. May we be built up in your word and in Christ this morning. May we prosper for your namesake and for your glory. Oh, that we might live lives before your face in your secure love for us and with those blessings that come only with sweet communion from you and that's promised in Christ. We ask for these things, these amazing things, these eternal things from you, Father, because we cannot do them for ourselves. And so we turn now trusting, leaning, casting ourselves upon Jesus Christ because he and he alone is our refuge and our strength and our comfort and our blessing. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you have heard, maybe uh, I'm thinking sixth or seventh grade English class of a poet by the name of Robert Frost who wrote The Road Not Taken. And in the last stanza, it, say, it reads this way. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now we have no evidence that Robert Frost has placed his faith in Christ or did place his faith in Christ or that he was in Christ in any way. Yet this poem has always pointed us to the fact that there are two ways. There are two categories of people. There are two paths. There are two routes in life. And this morning we see those two paths, those two ways, clearly from our psalm. In Psalm chapter 1, we see this psalm giving us two ways to live, two paths before us. This psalm really introduces the entire, what we call the Psalter, or the book of Psalms. Its significance and its influence is really uh, unparalleled to any of the other books in the Bible. Because what we find in the book of Psalms is that almost all the other authors of our Bible use the Psalms and quote, to, quote, quote from them. In fact, it's interesting for us to understand that though we have a hymn book there in our pews this morning that the hymn book for Jesus was this book, the book of Psalms. And the themes that are in the book of Psalms are all highlighted in Psalm 1. In other words, Psalm 1 is, if you will, an introduction to the entire Psalter. It gives us the theme and the aim, the end for why the book of Psalms was even written. And we see it there before us this morning, even in verse 1, where it says that the reason for this psalm and the reason for all the psalms is that we may be people who are, notice here, blessed. A blessed people. This is exactly what Jesus wanted, is it not? When he came and he began teaching his disciples at the very beginning of his ministry, he comes to the Sermon on the Mount, and right at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, he begins by saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what does it mean for us to be blessed? What does it mean for us to be blessed? We have a, a very interesting view of that today. You see it on the back of vehicles. You see it on bumper stickers. You hear people 
um, talk about being blessed. And my understanding is that there is, and I'm not on social media, so I don't really know what this means, but there's a hashtag blessed, which I guess means that's something that people do often, is write that out somehow. So what does it mean for us to be blessed? It does not mean, it does not mean going after as much of this world as we can. That seems to be what people mean when I see it, for example, in the back of cars or uh, in the public. It does not mean going after as much of the world as we can get. What it does mean is receiving with gratitude all that comes to us from the hand of God. Do you see the difference? In other words, it doesn't mean going after all that we can get from the world. It means receiving with gratitude all that comes to us from the hand of God. Being blessed is trusting in the promised favor and hope and joy and good that the Lord gives to his people generally, but also to each and every one of us personally. Being blessed means resting in the Lord's provision, even in a time of difficulty. Being blessed is not, therefore, wishful thinking or even foolish name-it-and-claim-it kind of formulas that you hear so often, maybe among co-workers or even fellow family members, believing against all odds or even against common sense. No, instead, blessed life is not trusting in something inside of us, but instead, being blessed means trusting in something outside of us. And that is the promise of who God is and what he says he will do through Jesus Christ. Do you see how this understanding has really been turned on its head? Now, some translations actually translate this word in Psalm 1, the first word in Psalm 1, as happy. And that's kind of difficult for us to understand as well. I think that's just as packed full of wrong thinking as the word blessed. So let's, let's look at the word blessed and figure out what scripture may speak of it. I will say this as we begin. I think we as Christians need to be more happy. We need to be people that understand that God has given us amazing treasure and amazing blessing. We do not need to be people that are constantly going around grum and and hopeless looking. Now, on the other side, we can't be like those that are in the world that are slap happy and foolish either, right? But what God has called us to is the life that is blessed. A life that's not fickle, meaning it Our our, our happiness or our joy or or our blessedness is rooted in all the things that are around us, but instead something that's, that's deeply rooted in something outside of us, something that God has done for us. And so we live not as people who are constantly grumbling about how awful the times are, but on the other side, we're also those who are, are, find our joy, our happiness, our blessedness in something other than What's around us in the world? Well, we do not need to look very far or very long to find that the Internet's full of and our bookstores are full of material that is trying to meet this need. How can people find contentment? How can people be satisfied? How can our hearts be established? It is amazing the amount of money and resource and energy that all of humanity places in this. And yet, right here before us, right in the middle of our Bible, we have very clearly a clear description of what it means for us as God's people to be a people who are resolved, a people who are blessed, a people who um, rest in the favor and the hope and the joy that God has given to us. This morning, we're going to be looking at more in more an extensive way what it means to be to live out this blessed life that God has given to us this blessed life that's being portrayed before us but I want us to see in Psalm 1 before we get into the actual text I want us to see as we look at it in a little more broad way two categories that are being mentioned here even the heading in our ESV Bible speaks of the way of the righteous and of the wicked we find that our entire Bibles have been broken up into two categories. There's all kinds of groupings. There's, there's two categories of people, for example, in America. There's two groups of people, for example, in this world. There are all ki- there's only two kinds of people in all of humanity. And we find in Scripture, in our Bible, that our Bible begins with two groups of people, one in Cain's line and one in Abel's line. Then we think of Jacob and Esau, two men distinct. We think in our Bibles of King Saul, 
And now we must think of King David. You see, we have these, these two individuals that are set beside each other over and over again in Scripture. Then we get to the New Testament and we see categories like Jesus as he's speaking of the lambs. And then the what? The goats, right? Or in John's Gospel where we speak of those who are in the dark and those who are of the light. As Paul speaks in the epistles of the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he speaks of those who are walking according to the flesh and those who are walking according to the Spirit. And we see these categories of law and gospel on the other side. So we find that our entire Bibles find that all of our lives, all of us, every single individual in this room, fall in one of two categories. And as we look at Psalm 1, we see that that's exactly what's taking place. There's the wicked, and there's the righteous. And what the psalmist is trying to do here in Psalm 1 is trying to commend to us a life of righteousness, a blessed life, a life that is rejecting and turning away from that life of wickedness. And he's calling us to lives of righteousness for our Lord's sake. And so this morning, I want us to notice these contrasts, these differences, these distinctions, and I want us to notice them in three different categories. And so notice with me, here's the outline for Psalm 1 this morning. Notice with me, verses 1 and 2 is the blessed foundation. Verses 1 and 2 is the blessed foundation. And in this blessed foundation, we're going to look at the two bases for truth. The true bases for truth. A blessed foundation, two bases for truth. Verses 1 and 2. Point number 2, we're going to be looking at the blessed direction. The blessed direction. And considering the two ways to live. The two ways to live. And this is verses 3 and 4. So, the blessed foundation, two bases for truth, verses 1 and 2. The blessed direction, two ways to live, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, point number 3, the blessed destination. The blessed destination. And this is two ends in view. Two ends in view. And, of course, we're going to be looking at 5 and 6 there. So 1 and 2 are the two bases of truth. Verses 3 and 4, the two ways to live. Verses 5 and 6, the two ends in view. So let's look, if you will, with me in verses 1 and 2 and consider this foundation, this, this two bases for truth that the psalmist lays before us. He says here that all humanity is going to find the bases or the foundation of what they believe and what they think and what they feel. They're going to find it from somewhere. And there's only two places for humanity to find this basis for what is true and what is right and what is good. And what we find here in our passage is that this psalmist tells us that it is clearly not the blessed person. The blessed man is one who stays away from, notice with me in verse 1, blessed is the man who disassociates himself from the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. Let me read it for us this morning, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and the Lord and of the, of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Did you see the progression there in verse one? It's a downward progression. It's a progression where one begins to begins to allow this the wicked to begin uh, influencing them, and it goes right into causing the, even the scoffer that you're dwelling in the midst of. So notice with me, if you will. The blessed one avoids or disassociates himself from the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. But notice what it says here as we look at this downward progression. It says, the blessed man is one who walks not, walks not, or lives, or abides, or, or casually comes around, has its influence by the counsel or the plans of the wicked, of the wicked. Now, the counsel or the plans or the advice, the conclusions of these wicked, it says that the blessed man is not even going to be, be, be walking around those. He's not going to be in the presence of those. He's not going to allow those things to influence him. Here, the understanding of wicked 
is more of a general term. It's not uh, a term that's actually used for something specific. It's actually, uh, the wicked is some general term. It's actually speaking of a person who lives with disregard to God. In other words, these people aren't, um, aren't those that we necessarily will see in just a minute that are actually acting on it. They just live their lives with no regard for God, with no consideration for God. And it says here that the blessed man is not going to allow himself to be influenced by the plans, the advice, the conclusions of these wicked people. And these wicked people are people who simply make their plans, give their counsel, and have their advice, and they do all of this without any regard for God. Brothers and sisters, we need to beware. Do we not? Do we need to be careful today if we're going to be God's people? if we're going to be people that are blessed, to not take upon us the counsel, the advice, the plans, the conclusions of those who do not regard God, and yet we think that their advice and their plans and their conclusions could be wise for us. It's not true. It says here very clearly that the beginning of this progression, this downward progression, is that the blessed man refuses to allow or walk in the counsel or in the plans of the wicked. But then the blessed man will not only, not only refuses to be in the influence of the wicked, the counsel of the wicked, but it goes on and it says, the progression continues. Second, it says, the blessed man will not stand in the way of sinners. Stand in the way of sinners. Do you see how now he is standing in the presence of these people? He's not just walking by or being influenced by them. What we find here is this one, this, this blessed man, is not wanting to even stand in their presence. To reside there. To find a position there. To, to have a station for himself. In other words, a regular or more abiding presence with those, it says here, stand in the way, in the way of these sinners. Now, it's interesting, these this word for sinner actually means something a little more than just simply the wicked. The idea of a sinner, think about it, this person isn't just one who lives their life with disregard for God, but a sinner is one who's acting on that disregard for God. In other words, a sinner is one who is not has allowed his wicked thoughts and his wicked um, considerations to be lived out, to be acted upon. In other words, a sinner is one who is one who is in rebellion to God. And what the psalmist is saying here is that the blessed man not only stays away from or avoids the walking in the counsel of the wicked, but also he avoids or stays away from the standing in the way of the rebellious, the sinner, the one who acts on his disregard for God. And then thirdly, I want us to notice the third and final digression, if you will, the, 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 the downward slide not only are they walking, but now they went to standing, and then we find that there is this, this sitting or dwelling. It's actually the word, this word for sit here is actually the word they use when they pitch tents. And so it's an idea of staying a while. It's the idea of staying overnight. It's be, being there, dwelling in more of a permanent way. And to linger in the presence of, notice what it says, those who are scoffers. Those who are scoffers, those who, some translations say, mock the things of the Lord. So we've gone from the wicked who simply live with a disregard for God to the sinner who lives actively in rebellion to God to the mocker who makes fun of the very law of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to know and we need to make it clear in the church today that if you live as one who is a follower of Christ... You will be mocked and scoffed at. Um, you're foolish and backwards in the mind of the world. You're simple-minded. You're dull. You're backwards. The cunning and craftiness of the world has convinced the world that they have the upper hand. That they're the ones that are forward-thinking. That they're the ones on the right side of history. We have to be those who say we're going to stand with the Word of God. We're going to believe this book. We're going to know that our Savior has come in the, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. He has died on the cross. He's shed his blood. He's removed the penalty and the guilt of our sin. And we, through faith in Christ, are saved and we will go to a heaven one day. 
and that we live before the very eyes of God. And we need to live as people who know that we have God watching us and that we're accountable not only to one another but to our Heavenly Father. This is very foolish to the world. This is something that the world will look at and chuckle. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the Lord says, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Brothers and sisters, we need to be those who understand as those who seek to be people that are blessed, men and women who follow after Christ, that we do not need to be walking in the counsel or the influences of the plans of the wicked. We do not need to be standing or positioning ourselves in the way of those who are rebellious. We do not need to be dwelling or residing in the place of those who want to mock the things of the Lord. But instead, we need to be marked by not just what we're against, and so often that's sadly the case. I actually had a, a, a co-worker that I was working with when we first started Sovereign Grace. I was working another job, and he, we went by a church sign, and the church sign gave a list of um, King James only, non-denominational, non-this, non-charismatic, non-this, non-this, and had this list of all the things they were against. And my unregenerate friend said, well, I know what they're against, but what are they for? We do not need to be people who are just simply against everything. What it says here is that we not only need to be those who avoid this wicked and the sinner and the scoffer, but here's the things we're to be associating with. If we were to disassociate ourselves in verse 1, now we need to be known as people, those who are blessed, are those who associate themselves with something. And this is what we need to be known for. We need to be men and women who truly love with a ceaseless longing The Word of God. The Word of God. Brothers and sisters, um, I preach for a long time, and I know that. I talk to other pastors, and a lot of them preach around the same time that I do. But the reason each one of you, many of you, have been here for so many years is because you love the Word of God. And that that is such a treasure. Don't assume that that's everywhere. Many people... Many people get, when they come and visit us, they get more scripture in the two hours that we're in the service together than they do in months in so many other congregations. Brothers and sisters, we are to be people who love the Word of God. If you have the Spirit of God in you and you're desiring to pursue the things of the Lord, I trust and we set up the worship service so that if you're delighting in the law of the Lord, then you're going to love what we're doing here. We're praying God's word. We're preaching God's word. We're singing God's word. We're hearing God's word. Why? Because we delight in it. We love it. It is precious to us. And so, brothers and sisters, how are we to be people that are blessed? We're to be people who delight in the Lord and in the law of the Lord. Here it speaks of the law of the Lord. Um, and, and it's actually, the word is Torah, which speaks of the first five books of the Old Testament. But this word also is used not just for Torah, but for instructions. The idea is that that we delight not just in the first five books of the Old Testament, but in all that God has to say to us. In other words, we, we, we delight in God's words to us, in how he instructs us, how he directs us through his word. May it be so, may it be said of us that we are people who love his instructions, his law, His guidance, the very words of God are sweet to us. As it says in 1910, which we read this morning, or Phil read for us, there to be, God's words to be more desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is glorious. It is delightful. It is is stunningly beautiful. As we spend time looking at God's word, we become more and more attracted to the truth that's in it. We say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so that which marks a person who is a blessed man or woman of God is that this one delights in the law of the Lord. But here's the real question this morning. How can I delight in the law of the Lord? How is it that my heart will be more and more stirred to delight in God's word? 
Some of you may be sitting here this morning and say, you know what, I, I have great regard for God's Word. I think it is the Word of God. I consider it to be uh, completely without error, completely and absolutely perfect in all that it says. But you, you're thinking to yourself, and you may be considering in your own heart, but, but do I genuinely love and delight and treasure and long for God's Word? If I had a wonderful dessert at the fellowship meal after church today, and it was my favorite dessert, and I wanted to convince you that it was the best thing you ever put in your mouth, what would I do? I would break down and be willing to share, and I would give you some. Because there's only one way that you will know whether that dessert is the best, most tasty, wonderful dessert that you've ever had. And that is for you to taste it. How are we to delight in the Word of God? Brothers and sisters, we're to taste it. We're to be in it. If you desire to delight in God's Word more and more, we see right here before us how we are to delight in God's Word more and more. And it says this, But his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord. And how does he grow in his delight? How does he linger in his delight? How does he strengthen this delighting and longing for the Word of God? It says, And his law he's meditating on day and night. Brothers and sisters, taste and see that he is good. Meditating on the law of God shows itself to be the very precious, sweet, infinite source of delight that God says it is. It will water your souls. It will refresh your very lives. Brothers and sisters, why is it that before the service today, I was looking at the resource table and looking at the different booklets, and the one that keeps giving out week after week is the one on anxiety and panic attacks. Why is that? It's because we're just as disturbed as the world is. We're trying to grasp and figure out why our lives are so frantic and overwhelmed and anxious. What does the Lord tell us? Do not be anxious for tomorrow. The Lord gives us His Word. We're convinced that everything else can answer that question, but it won't. The only way we can have that question answered in our own souls is for us to come to the Word of God that can do what only the Word of God can do. Brothers and sisters, this Word is a delight. It is an infinite source of watering our very souls. Don't just, don't just pick up God's Word and bring it to church. Don't just, just don't take it and read a verse or two and move on. Don't just um, use those, those little booklets that I remember when I was younger and in Southern Baptist churches, I think it's open windows or something, where it has a verse and then the rest of the page is something that somebody says about the verse. But at the end of the day, all you get is a verse a day, right? Take the time to, to take in God's Word, to roll it around in your heart, to allow it to be a savor to you. Acquire a taste for God's Word. And the way we do that is by meditating on it, is by meditating on it. Now, when we see the word meditate today, uh, in the world especially, the idea of meditating is basically associated with emptying your minds of all kinds of thoughts and feelings and, and letting yourself go and then kind of waiting and pausing. That's not the biblical concept of meditation. The biblical concept of meditation means filling your mind with God's Word and His truth and allowing that truth to confront your affections, your fears, your anxieties, your loves, and allowing God's Word to shape you and to make you. This is what I mean when I speak of meditation. We're to meditate, not just occasionally or in a sporadic way here and there, every so often. What does our Bible say? We're to be those who meditate on his word day and night. Day and night. This is not hard for us to see. This is exactly what God tells us. If we're going to be a blessed people, if we're going to be a people who are, who are gripped by who God is, if we are going to delight in his word, then we need to be people who meditate on his law, not sporadically, not occasionally, but day and night. Day and night. 
I thought about several different things I could do to try to help us understand this. One of the least helpful things I can do is tell you what I do, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I do. Um, I, have a, I have a particular way that I meditate on God's Word that is a way that I work through my day. I have passages that I begin my day with. I have passages I end my day with. There are things that I do during the day, and the way I do it has changed throughout my life. And so the practice here is not as important as the principle, and the principle is get into God's Word. And don't just, don't just mow through it, but spend time lingering on it. So here are a few quick tips that may help us that are general and generic enough to help us as we begin thinking about how do I meditate on God's Word. First, I want to just kind of say this as we begin. If you're reading five or six chapters a day, some of you may be, and you read your five chapters a day and you close your Bible or you have this reading plan that you're in and you're getting through it in a year, and the aim is to read what you need to read for today because if you get behind, you'll never catch up and you need to read through your Bible every year, I would encourage you to stop it. Because there are no extra points in heaven for those of you who read your Bible every year at the end of the year and come December 31st, you're finished. There isn't any extra brownie points for that. The point is not that we just simply get the task done. The point is that we know God's Word. And ultimately, the point is this. Hear me. That we commune with our God. This is our God that we're speaking of. This is the one who created us and made us. He knows our souls. And he has a word for us. He has truth to speak into our lives. How do we meditate? Let me give you just simple things that may get us going in the right direction. First, write the word pray. Pray. The way you start to meditate on God's word is to pray. (laughs) And my prayer almost every morning is, open my eyes, Lord, that I may see glorious things in your law. That's my prayer. Lord, help me see in your word what I need to see because my heart is dull, my my body's weary, I'm tired. Pray and ask the Lord by his spirit to come and help you meditate on his word. So the first thing I want you to see as we meditate is pray. Second is, is mark your Bible. Now, some of you don't like marking your Bible, so I would say get a pen and a journal and write the verse out. I mark in my Bible. I have all kinds of Bibles that are marked up. Um, I didn't for a while. But now that I have several Bibles that have been marked up, and I've gone to um, old libraries and opened up Bibles from Spurgeon and, and um, Moody and others, and I look at these Bibles of these men who've gone before me, and I see in their Bibles all these markings and notes and little things in the side, and I've got a Bible from my great-grandmother, that has markings in it that's precious to me. And so I would commend that you mark your Bible and then leave it for the generation that comes after you to see how your faith has been shaped and marked and and confirmed by the Word. So get a pen or pencil. You are not going to meditate unless you have a pen or pencil in your hand. Mark your Bible or write in a journal. Write out the verse. Okay. So pray. Number two, write. Whether that's marking in the Bible or writing in a journal. Thirdly, Say the verse over and over, emphasizing a different word each time you say the verse. So how many times do I say the verse? You say the verse as many times as there is a word in that verse. So for how many ever words are in that verse, you say that verse all the way through that many times. And each time you go to the next word and emphasize that word and stop on it. And think about it. What's that word there for? Why is it it connected to these other words? What is God saying to me through this? Emphasize a different word each time you go through. It's interesting because the word here, the Hebrew word for meditate, means to mutter to oneself. In other words, it means you're mumbling. you're, you're, You're quietly speaking. And so as you read through, blessed, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And, and mutter to yourself, meditate on the passage. So pray, write, say the verse over and over again, emphasizing a different word each time, and then ask questions of the text or the verse. Here are four questions that I ask of uh, in the mornings when I'm going through my, my Bible reading. I ask these four questions. Um, who is God revealing himself as in this verse? In other words, who is God in this verse? Second, how do I sin against this verse? How am I a sinner? How am I exposed or shown to be a sinner in this verse? So who is God? How am I sinning? And then I ask the third question, why is Jesus necessary? 
Why is Jesus necessary for this truth, for this truth that's in this verse? And then finally, the question I ask is, what does faith and repentance look like specifically today in my life because of this verse? Who is God? How am I a sinner? Why is Christ necessary? And then what does faith and repentance specifically look like? Okay, ask questions. And then finally, finally, my encouragement to you is to memorize a verse every week. Take a verse, one verse, or a couple of short verses, and commit yourself to Scripture memory every week. And the best way you can do that, I'm glad you asked, is on the top of page 5 of your worship journal, we're going to start putting a verse at the top of page 5 of the worship journal every week that we're going to start as a church seeking to memorize and hold each other accountable to. And this is a wonderful way for us to do this. So, without them knowing, I'll go ahead and say now, the elders and the deacons would love for you to ask them the memory verse next week and see if they can say it. So that's a challenge to you children, right? And husbands and fathers, husbands and fathers, moms and wives, what better verse for us to start on than this one? Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Isn't that, a, isn't that a great verse for us as families in this church? Great verse for us to begin memorizing and thinking through and considering together. All right? So, very practical side of the sermon. Hopefully this was helpful. How do we meditate on God's word so that we can delight in it? And in so delighting in God's word, we grow to... It, the point isn't that we know more of, God, more of the God's word the point is that we know more of God. We know more of Him. We linger with Him, that we have communion with Him. That's the point, brothers and sisters. Pray, write, say it over and over again, ask questions, and finally memorize it. All right? Why do we do this? Because in Psalm 119.11 it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This keeps us from sinning when we meditate and murmur over God's word over and over again. In the book of Joshua, verse 8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I'm wanting you to linger in God's word so that you can be the people that God's called you to be. Point number one. A blessed foundation, find your foundation. The basis of your truth should be God's word. Point number two, the blessed direction. A blessed direction, two ways to live. Notice with me the two, um, here's your grammar lesson for the day. Are these verses three and four, are these similes or are these metaphors? I got all my homeschool teachers. Homeschool teacher, if you're a homeschool teacher, you don't count. You can't answer because you already have an advantage. Are these similes or metaphors, somebody? They're similes. Why? Because the word like is in them, right? Okay? If we're people of the book, we need to be a people of grammar. It says in verse 3 that the person who is blessed, the man or woman who is blessed, is like a tree. You see that? It's like a tree. And then in verse 4, it says that the wicked person is like chaff. Do you see that there in verse 4? Let's look first at the, the positive, this, this being like a tree. It says that a blessed person is like a tree. A tree, not just any tree, but a tree that specifically and uniquely is planted by streams of water. This understanding of streams here isn't natural streams. That's a different word. The Hebrew word here for streams is an is a, is a artificial stream. In other words, they're irrigating this tree. The Lord is bringing in these streams. He's watering this tree uniquely. And it's saying here that this is a, a tree that's planted by streams or irrigation of water, and they're being watered, it says, by someone else. In other words, the Lord here is watering this tree. That's one who is blessed. That's one who's meditating on God's word. That's one who is so delighting on God's word that they do meditate on God's word. And they're like a tree who's planted by streams of water. Notice the wonderful fruit of this. It says that this tree that's planted by streams of water, this blessed person, it's one who will yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf will not wither. Again, brothers and sisters, God says that if we are people who, 
who linger in his word, who meditate on it, who delight in his word. We're not people who are withering. We're not people who are weary. We're not people who are overwhelmed and overtaken by the world. We're not people who are on the verge of giving up. We're not people who are tired and worn out and overwhelmed all the time. It says here that those who are in God's word, those who are meditating on it, are those who are like, like those that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In other words, this is a tree that's flourishing, a tree that is thriving. And we got to see as well that it goes on and it says that this tree not only is one that has its yield, its fruit, and its season, but also its leaves does not wither. But finally, in verse 3, it says, In all that he does, this blessed person, this blessed person, he prospers. He prospers. This is not uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity idea. This idea here, this is the word that's often taken up there, but if you look at this word, the idea is not uh, financial or mere material earthly wealth. Who wants to live for that? It goes away. It doesn't just go away when you die. It goes, it's going away right now. No, it says here that this prosperity is a properly oriented life to God that is committed to God's will, to his blessings, and to his ways. This is one who is committed, who's prospering in all that God has given to him or her. He's prospering, he's flourishing. Now notice the contrast. There couldn't be any more clear and stark contrast between a tree that is planted by streams of water, that's flourishing, that's bearing fruit, that's not withering, that's prospering in every way. And we think of trees as well as as that which is stable and rooted and grounded as it should be. But then we see the contrast here of the wicked person. He's saying, don't be like the wicked person. Why? Because the wicked person here in verse 4 is described. It says, the wicked are not so. They're not like this tree that's planted by streams of water, that's flourishing, and that is not withering. But instead, the wicked are like chaff. Do you see the contrast? It couldn't be any more different. They're driven all over the place by wind. They're back and forth. They're never fixed. Chaff, what does chaff produce? Nothing. Do you see the contrast here? Brothers and sisters, have you been living more like the world, like chaff? Or have you been living more like the tree firmly planted by streams of water? Why is that so? It's directly connected to your delight in God's word. And your delight in God's word is directly connected to the amount that you're spending in God's word. The more you're in it, the more you'll love it. John Owen, I mention this probably every other Sunday, but John Owen says in his book, Communion with Triune God, and he talks about a longing and a desire to linger with God. And he's got a massive book, but at the end of it, he basically says this, if the love of the Father doesn't do it, then nothing will. Nothing will. If the love of the Father doesn't captivate us, if the Word of God doesn't delight us, then don't go anywhere else to be delighted because there is no other place to be delighted. This is where we will find our delight. This is where we'll find our sustenance. This is where we will be rooted and grounded. This is where we will be stable and not tossed all over the place like chaff. We will no longer be like the wicked who are fickle, and flighty, filled with fears, never quite sure that you're doing the right thing that needs to be done, never quite sure that you're where you need to be doing what you need to be doing, always discontent, always discouraged, never quite sure that this is exactly what needs to be happening. Brothers and sisters, we need to avoid, we need to turn from this life of chaff being tossed here and there. Now, we talked about these two ways to live. One is one by being, being a tree planted by streams of water. Other is like chaff. And we see here that um, it gives us two paths, two, two, two um, directions for us to live in. But, but know this, and, and I get this question a good bit, and so hopefully this will be helpful for you. Our Bible is not an answer book. In other words, ladies, 
don't go looking for Paul to marry because that's where you're reading right now. <laughs> that's the name you're reading, right? In other words, the Bible doesn't have the name of the person that you're supposed to marry or the location of where you're supposed to move or the specific business that you're supposed to take a job at. No, the way the Bible works is this. It doesn't, gives us, it doesn't give us specifics about, about um, unique and very specific things, but instead, it more, it, as we more spend our time meditating on his word, delighting in his word, growing in his wisdom, hearing from him, lingering in his thoughts and his direction for our lives, as the Lord blesses us, having the word wash over our hearts day in and day out, tweaking and changing and altering our affections and our thoughts, our concerns, and the way we gather our lives day in and day out, year after year, this will have a significant impact on our ability to make choices that are ultimately wise and in accord with God's word. In other words, you're going to live according to the counsel of the wicked, according to the way of sinners, according to and sit in the seat of scoffers, or you're going to allow God's word to linger in your heart so that when things come at you, you'll be able to make choices that are wise and directed by love and fear of God that you know, not a love and fear of God that you are making assumptions about. And so, brothers and sisters, meditate on God's word. Be one who is planted like a tree by streams of water so that you may flourish and so that you may not wither and be tossed to and fro. Point number three, a blessed destination. A blessed destination. Notice with me this blessed destination or two ends in view. Here's the point really in verses 5 and 6 that I want you to see. And it is this. This is for keeps. This is not one of, this is not Stephen Covey's seven habits of a uh, highly effective people. No, it's not right. It's seven habits of something. This is not some guru's plan, and you've got ten other books you can read that gives different ways of doing other plans. This is God's word. God says you're going to either be a blessed man, or you're going to live like the wicked who are like chaff. And that there is an eternal, fixed judgment at the end that will distinguish all things. Now, granted, it's fuzzy today. It's fuzzy to figure out who are the righteous and who are the wicked. It's a fuzzy thing. It's a difficult thing to figure out what exactly is happening and how is God blessing. And I see people here in our congregation blessed. I see people in our congregation who seems to be living for the Lord and their lives are falling apart. I see the world out there, the ungodly, living it up. And they seem to have all kinds of wonderful things and great things. And they seem to be the ones that are blessed. We're the ones that are struggling and going through difficulties. What's going on? The psalmist here says in verse 5 that we need to consider these things. Therefore, do you see the logical connection there? He's saying the reason we need to consider these things is because there's an eternal fixed divide that will become clear one day. Notice what it says. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. And notice, he speaks of the congregation of the righteous there in verse 5. In other words, there were some that were in this congregation as the psalmist was, was singing this or speaking this. He says, there are some who are actually sinners, who are not the righteous, who are in the midst of the congregation of the righteous and know that on that day they will even be shown for who they are. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, there will be a day when this divide, this divide alone, this divide between the righteous and the wicked will be clearly distinguished. There will be two categories. It may seem fuzzy right now. And it may not even see, seem real clear right now, but it will be clear one day, and we're to live as those who are blessed, men and women. It says in our statement of faith, in Article 17 on the righteous and the wicked, we believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God. 
are truly righteous in his esteem, while all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse. Listen to the last line of our statement of faith in this regard. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. There will be a judgment day when all things will be made clear, and the distinction will no longer be fuzzy as it is here on earth. And on that day, the sinner will not be able to even stand, it says here, that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. He won't even be able to stand, nor will he be able to reside or pretend in the congregation of the righteous. But brothers and sisters, notice what it also says in verse 6. It goes on, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word for know is the word used in Genesis 4.1 when it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So did Adam just know about his wife, that he had a wife, and that her name was Eve? Is that all he knew about her? No, he knew her intimately. It says in Exodus, as we just got finished preaching through the book or working through the book of Exodus, in Exodus 2, God's people were in incredible turmoil, right? They were crying out to God. They were saying, please help us. We're in slavery in Egypt. And it says in Exodus 2, 24, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew them. In other words, brothers and sisters, this passage here in verse 6 is saying that the Lord doesn't just acknowledge that you're here. Sometimes that seems like that's all that God does. He just acknowledges that you're here. No, the Lord knows you intimately. and He wants to draw you near. And he has, he has the truth and the promise that will water your soul specifically better than anything this world can give to you. And it's in, your, in his word. And his spirit has promised that he wants, to, he wants to build you up and strengthen you in that. Spend time in God's word and he will so know you. I find it odd. In the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus was talking about all the different blessings that his people, his disciples would have as they follow him. But then in, at the, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says something along the lines of this. Depart from me, for I never knew you. That's interesting, because it would seem, wouldn't it, that when we read that verse, it would say, Depart from me, because you never knew me. That's not what it says. That verse doesn't say that in Matthew 7. The Lord Jesus is saying, Depart from me, because I, Jesus, never knew you. Brothers and sisters, this is not about how much you know about God. That's not why you're reading this book. (laughs) What it's about is God knowing you. God placing his favor upon you. God drawing you close to him. Brothers and sisters, if you are a blessed man, you are a man whom God knows. You're a woman whom God knows. And when he knows you, it says here, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, what will happen to the way of the wicked? It will perish. It will be of no good. It will be of no use. You've heard the phrase before that says, you're so, you're so heavenly minded, you know earthly good. Have you ever heard that? That is an exact opposition of what scripture says. C.S. Lewis once said, and I'm not going to quote him exactly, but he says something to the fact that if we are, if we are, Heavenly-minded, we get earth thrown in. If we keep our hearts and our attention and our focus and our love and our desire upon God and who he is, that you may dwell with him and be with him, you'll get, you'll get the blessings, so many blessings on the earth just thrown in. So we have this morning before us this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And this contrast, like all the other contrasts in scriptures, makes a distinction, and it's pointing to an ultimate contrast, a a, a distinction and a contrast that all others rest on. And it is this, the contrast between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. For it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. So as we begin thinking about the Lord's table this morning, I want you to understand that the world in all of its wisdom lauds and values being inclusive. It has a community focus. The world in all its wisdom thinks synergistic, democratic understanding of things is the way that we should go. But know this, brothers and sisters, this very clear eternal truth is in Psalm 1 in all of our Bibles. And it is this, that the Lord in his church has called us to be a people who are distinct, not a people who are similar. However, our Bibles regularly place the value upon exclusivity. And you heard me right. Our Bibles place an incredible value not upon inclusivity, but exclusivity. On distinctions, not how we're similar. In other words, brothers and sisters, it would be easy for us to unintentionally, as a church, and me as a pastor, and us as elders and deacons, unintentionally to give you the impression that what really matters this morning is that we all belong together, that we all have relationships with one another, that we all care for each other, and being together is what's most important. In fact, I know of many, many churches, even in this town, and their slogan for their church is a place to belong. There's a bar that has that slogan. So why is it different than anything else? No, brothers and sisters, let me be clear that if you are here this morning and, and you do not know Christ, you're not in Christ, we, we're glad you're here. And we are so thrilled that you are able to enjoy some fellowship with us and enjoy that. But, but know this, what we have this morning is not first and foremost our belonging together, but instead our being what God has called us to be. In other words, brothers and sisters, the church has always, and this church will be, primarily not about us belonging, but instead our being. The reason the people here in this church are members of the church, have become members of the church, and they're distinct. We have 75 persons that are members of our church, 39 families that are, that are members of our church. I know that number. We as leaders know that number. You know why? Because they are distinct and set out from all the others in the world. We are responsible for those people. Why? It isn't because we like each other. It isn't because we all look alike. It isn't because we all have the same interests. It's because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. In other words, what's most important about us, brothers and sisters, is we gather together as God's people. Isn't that we belong, but first, that we are people who in our being are together. We first understand the being of who we are as most important, and then we belong. In other words, our being in Christ is what shapes us and what makes us. And we believe that as a church and as leaders, we serve you best as those who are not in Christ or who do not desire to be in Christ. We serve you best to tell you that you are not just like us in every way, except for some small, insignificant way. No. Verses 5 and 6 said there is a radical, eternal, fearful difference between those who are in Christ and those who just come here and hang out. Brothers and sisters, this is a severe matter, and we want to love you well by letting you know you do not belong if you are not in Christ. Now, come to our congregation. Let us love you. Let us encourage you. Let us point you to Christ. But you do not belong in the church, in the sense of in God's family, if you are not in Christ. Because that is what drives us together. That's what makes us that's what makes us, us. That's our identity. So, though the world and so many churches have desperately tried to make the church inclusive, right down to something that is for the entire history of the Christian church has been a distinguishing mark of the church, and that is this table. This table today, in so many churches, 
It's for whoever feel good, feels good about themselves, come and enjoy this, because everybody, everybody knows we're all human, and so God has made all of us, and so all of us can come to the table and do that. This table is a distinguishing table. It's a distinctive table. It's a place for those who are in Christ to come. Now, if you're a sinner and you're struggling to be faithful and you call out to God and you say, God, help me. I desire to repent. I desire to trust in you. I want to follow after you. I've placed my faith in you, but I'm struggling in all kinds of areas. This table is for you. It's not for sinless people. If that were the case, you or I will not be able to come. This table is for those who belong. And the reason those who belong belong are because they are distinct in Christ. There are those who are regenerate, who are repentant, who are responsible, who've been reconciled with one another. In other words, brothers, let me finish it out by saying it this way. In the New Testament, we find that the blessed man, the really truly blessed man, is the man who is in Christ. The man or woman who is in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in a meager, little, small way. Is that what it says? No. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How are we those who belong? We're those who first find our being in Christ Christ. 